Hello and welcome to Mon Animism, a very convoluted guide. I'm your podcaster Sarah Jane and happy Modern Animist Monday. In tonight's episode, rather than looking at new animism, such as radical animism, architectural animism, environmental animism and philosophical animism, I'll be looking at the different forms of animism as they occur around the world. Firstly, starting with a social contract model of animism. The social contract model of animism is possibly the most popular form of animism. And it's popular in two senses. Firstly, it's popular with anthropologists. It's widely reported upon. And secondly, it's widely practiced and therefore widely recorded. The social contract form of animism suggests that animists are in a relationship with nature, by which I mean they consider nature to be a family member, such as when we hear the terminology Grandfather Rock or Grandmother Moon. All objects are familiar relations, and the names that we give to these neighbours indicate the kind of relationships we hold with natures differential and kind. The names grandfather or auntie or whatever name we label them with, they indicate the respect that we hold for them. And that rocks are strong, so grandfather rock holds the quality of strength and we as humans respect that strength that the inanimate object has and we aspire to be like them. So the social contract theory of animism suggests that we can value and aspire to be like inanimate objects. Of course, the social contract model of animism has many flaws. For Firstly, it promotes the concept that the spirits in our world are beneficial, or at least interested in us, and keen to engage with, it, with humanity on some level. It's all very pretty pretty. We don't get the sense of gremlins that we would do in European folklore. The kind of spirits that throw spanners in the work. That kind of spiritual belief. With social contract animism, everything works with us. But on the other hand, social contract animism has the highest level of human engagement. There are lots more objects. Every object we can engage interacting and engage with because everything has a quality we can aspire towards and we're heavily involved there's a lot of emotional investment in this world we have neighbors and they are similar to us therefore we can feel empathy towards them so social contract speaks of mutual respect we have neighbors and relatives in the world around us and if you compare this to the religious belief in a pantheon of deities, when you see the world is full of non-human people, a pantheistic person prays for divine intervention. But the animists, they be giving to a relationship. They put in the time, they put in their respect, they give back to nature. You're putting into that relationship, whereas a pantheonistic person would be demanding the blessings, they demand the protection, 
or the opportunity from their deity. So it's a whole different way of seeing the world. Now the second drawback I mentioned of social contract animism is that it doesn't explain how or why inanimate objects have life. It doesn't say, yes, all inanimate objects have a soul or all inanimate objects have a consciousness. The social contract model makes it look as if inanimate objects have equal value to us. We all have a quality between the different objects, between the different lives, the different life forces. But most of this interaction occurs from humanity. We're the ones that put the emphasis upon it. Um, the objects themselves, they don't really give much to the relationship. We must compare this to the other forms of animism that we're going to look at. We're going to the second one now. But this is in which the inanimate objects contain an internal element upon which their value is based. So the second form of animism and the only other one that I'm talking about this evening is vitalism. Now vitalism is the oldest form of animism. It's a belief that we first see recorded by the ancient Egyptians, but will have preceded them. And it's the belief that all objects are alive because they contain a vital energy inside themselves. But not all objects have vitality. Not all objects have this essence inside themselves. So this is a form of animism in which we build relationships with these neighbours around ourselves by sharing this vitality, by promoting this interaction with them. When animism was first recorded by Sir Edward Taylor in 1872, he proposed that all religions came from this one proto-religion, that everything that we know from Christianity, Judaism, it all came from one source and that source was animism. But the idea that he was talking about the animism that he believed in was vitalism. Animism is a doctrine of vitality. This is because vitality was a pre-existing European medical belief and it was already documented in the Victorian era that Taylor belonged to, which we believed that things were alive because something inside them kept them alive. So in vitalism there's an internal energy in the body such as chi or prana. It's a kind of energy that keeps us alive and conscious and functioning. But under vitalism you have to keep this body alive and functioning by imbuing it with things to keep it alive. So in the modern concept of vitality and um, it's like an energy that feeds all souls and substances that enables them to function. But this is element of interaction because if objects have life, if objects have vital energy, it's because we've put that energy into them. We've interacted with them. Or not specifically human, sometimes something else would have interacted. And so there's kind of a causality in the way that vitalism works. Uh, vitalism is important to complementary medicine, such as in homeopathy, where two objects can be transferred. They'll both have similar energetic signatures, so that you could cure 
um, smallpox with a remedy that has the same effect or looks similar. So it's the idea that en energy can be interchanged and used interchangeably, but one form has an equal energetic signature to a second form. There's no hierarchy of it. The two things can be altered or interjected. And vitalism is important to healing systems when one comes to remove disease. You improve the flow of inner energy and things that occur energetically are the basis and cause of things that then go on to occur materially. So things that happen on an energetic level will then form illnesses on a physical level. Vitalism is used in folklore. In Frankenstein, we see the undead is reanimated using electricity. And we have a vampire mythology in which the beasts must continually eat blood to keep themselves alive. So vitalism exists in our stories of spirits, especially where we leave food for pixies. And we know that um, in our mythology that supernatural spirits would go around stealing fats. They'd steal high carbonated um, foods because they need to consume materials to keep themselves alive for their inner vitality. So um, vitality then occurs in fairy stories such as in the magic porridge pot which the pot keeps churning out unlimited amounts of porridge. And then this belief passes into not just fairy beings but pagan sites such as holy wells and butter dishes, you know where there's a dip in the ground and it gathers water so that water can be taken, you drink that and you'll imbue yourself with it and therefore you'll be healed by taking on board the energy. But simultaneously you have this act of giving that you have to give to sites so you find that not only do they give food out to the wee beasts and the wee folk um, but people will bring gifts of bread and butter to standing stones um, and they give offerings at holy sites and that's to make sure that the holy site functions more efficiently. You're building the whatever the energetic um, material is there that you have to build into that and feed into that and give back to that relationship. So these acts indicate we expect the objects will take the offerings into themselves and they will be revitalised and become stronger. So vitalism is like a paganistic form of animism. It's full of folk mythology, votive offerings. Um, it's a pagan mythology in which the world is full of spirit beings. But the spirit beings are not found universally in all objects like there was in the social contract theory. But you have to bring the spirit or bring that energy into the place, into the site. Um, so you build it up and develop it. So under vitalism, the world is full of spirit familiars and alchemy and mediumship. You can pour things into yourself. And vitalism promotes something like chi or prana as being the cause of our relationship with nature. There are, of course, other animistic belief systems which promote an interaction between ourselves and nature. And there are systems in which the inanimate becomes animated because it develops a soul. So it doesn't, because it's not got a life inside it, but it might develop because it has soul in other systems. And then for other systems, the inanimate objects 
are alive because they have a consciousness. Um, on other systems, the animism works because the object pulls down a divine source into itself. Um, it's like a, a mana style of animism. These are all the old world systems of animism. Then you have the ancestor worship, totemism, and they only partially utilise these systems. So there's like a crossover in which they believe things that are similar and we'll want to get into that as well at some point. Then we understand after modern animism, um, we need to understand why new animism is so special because it doesn't rely on any of these beliefs. Instead, modern animism um, discusses quantum entanglement in which everything has an equal value because um, it, on some quantum level we're part of some superstructure so everything has an equivalent value. Um, but there's much less interaction. There's no need to actually for us to have a conversation with a rock or take something in as a familiar friend because we're already communicating with them on a subatomic level. We are part of them on some consciousness level. So we don't actually automatically need to do the work the same way that a social contract person would need to do the work if you're a monanimist. And this to topic, oh, this topic is too big to cover in just one session. So next time, we're going to start looking at polytheism, polyspiritualism, hylozoism, and those are all the other forms of animism which depend upon consciousness, soul, or mana. And then only after that will you start to discuss new animism um, and about the umbrella of superconsciousnesses. We want to see how that superconsciousness relates back to these older forms of animism. So how does modern animism, why does it exist? What's its future? What's its goals and its objectives? And all of that will be coming up in the next couple of podcasts coming. And so I hope you're happy to join me then. I look forward to um, reading to you.